Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of But Why. Today I'm joined by Sunday Times bestselling author Atego Wagba and her latest book, which I think is published this week, is called We Need to Talk About Money. So that's exactly what we did. We talked about money. Now, money is one of those subjects, well, it really does make the world go round, doesn't it? And there is definitely a conversation to be had about the ins and outs of finance. I guess it's financial literacy, which is very important. But today we are talking much more about what are we talking about? Like the, the overarching emotional connection we have with money, where we learn our values about money, how that shows up in in the way we conduct ourselves. We touch briefly on jobs. And I guess this is very much through the lens of being a millennial woman, um, which has very specific things attached to it. In um, Otega's book, she she goes through things in a chronological manner, and I loved hearing those cultural references and, and looking at money in terms of those specific years when we both grew up. I'm trying to like cling on to that, although I'm a little bit older than her, but you know what I mean. Um, so without further ado, let's get cracking with this episode. Here we go. So we're here to talk about money and to talk about your book, which I'm going to show the camera, which is pointless because I don't even know these videos will go out, but we need to talk about money. I'm like a third of the way through it and I've been really torn because I needed to try and read it fast to try and research this podcast, but also I'm really enjoying it. So it's like, it's it, I've been a bit of an wrangle because it's like, I don't want to kind of speed read this. I want to take it in. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. That's really, really nice to hear. Like, absolutely brilliant. And I know you're, like, nudging towards publication date, but you've done a, a really incredible thing of telling your own story, which is hugely personal and based on all your experiences, but somehow tying in universal things. It's it's so weird when you're... Because I think I'm a nudge older than you. I'm 39. How old are you? I'm 30. Yeah, OK. So I was like... I, but, you know, your references are all very similar. And I was mm. just like... Oh my word, I've just never even thought about the things that you're talking about. And when you begin to unpick like your relationship with money from the word go, it's absolutely wild. So I guess for listeners, give give us a top line of, of, of the book and what you wanted to achieve with it. And also whether what you set out to do and what it ended up being, whether they were different or not. Yeah, so 
we need to talk about money is sort of part memoir as you said and also partly cultural commentary which was very much the intention that i had when i set out to write it like i i wanted to write and you know a personal account of my own experiences with money over the years but also talk about what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money particularly as that relates to women and you know our position in society so it was always going to be a mixture of the personal so stories from my childhood my adolescence my like professional life but then also touching on lots of bigger issues because at the end of the day like i am you know i'm just an ordinary person i'm not this isn't like a drew barrymore type of memoir where it's like that's just interesting you know in and of itself i was like i think in telling my own stories it needs to touch on other bigger issues so it mm-hmm. talks about class and privilege and and feminism and race and beauty standards you know how money affects friendships and it's really just looking at how people's experiences of those things differ according to how much money they have mm-hmm. and and how that impacts our lives but yeah as i said really exploring the kind of emotional and psychological side about money because I I knew I didn't want it to be like a how-to book or like a Mm -hmm. manual um, because I think there's a lot of really brilliant financial advice out there already Mm -hmm. Um, but I definitely felt like I haven't seen a really personal account of money like this that's really honest it's honest about the kind of slightly you know it's honest about the less glamorous bits and you know the kind of quite negative emotions i've had of, mm-hmm. towards over the years and things that don't necessarily portray me in a good light you know i talk about envy and jealousy and all mm-hmm. sorts of things so um but yeah that was kind of what i, I set out to do with it and in, in doing that have you found yourself having more conversations in general with friends family etc about money has it has it like un it yeah, opened it up as something that is front and center in conversations yeah, I think definitely. I think the fact that I'm, you know, writing this book about money, I do find that friends tend to kind of bring it up with me or tend to be a bit more open, you know, about their money situations with me or tend to just kind of ask me questions, which, you know, I never mind. Like, I'm a journalist, so I kind of see it all as information gathering. Like, I don't know, I had an interview the other week where somebody was like, oh, do you, you know, does it never kind of get boring? Like people kind of asking you about their money dilemmas. And I'm like, no, it really doesn't. Fascinating. Like, I, yeah, I'm just learning something each time, even if somebody's viewpoint is completely different from mine, even if the position is completely different from mine. Like I really go into kind of information gathering mode and I'm just like, this is all personal research for me on a topic that I find endlessly fascinating. Like, yeah. Even once I've finished this book, I'm going to continue to be obsessed by this topic. You know, whenever I see an interesting article, that's money related like I click on it and I have to read it so um it's definitely opened up conversations and I think it's also made me feel more comfortable talking honestly about money um in a way that like my sort of you know threshold for what is awkward now when it comes to money like there isn't really one like, I'm just quite happy to talk about everything which I think can only be like a huge advantage actually because this is skipping about 10 steps into where I was going to go but I think particularly for women and this is based purely on my experience we we aren't that comfortable with talking about money I always see it in the most basic sense like if if a guy owes his mate 20 quid they're much better at going oh mate you owe me 20 quid give it to me whereas I, I'm very bad or I'm trying to be better at, like at tiptoeing around that and like oh I'm really sorry but could you give me that 20 quid you owed me and it's like no wonder then when we ladder up to negotiating pay if you can't ask your best mates for the 20 quid they owe you it, it doesn't stand us in very good stead does it yeah but you know the thing is 
it's interesting that you bring up the pay um sort of about negotiating yeah. pay because that's actually like a really common myth and you know and i explore that in the book like for years there has been this received wisdom that women aren't as good at asking for money or less likely mm-hmm. to ask rises and there are reasons and there are data that have kind of led to that conclusion Mm -hmm. but there's been much more recent and much more kind of thorough research done on that in the past couple of years and actually what they found like you know it's been like mckinsey and company like you know the top consultancy firm in the world they found that women are actually as likely to negotiate for pay and ask for pay rises as men are they're just more likely to be told no wow and I think that's a really, really important distinction mm-hmm. because even mm-hmm. just looking at my own personal story, you know, I talk about various negotiations in the book or attempted negotiations in the mm-hmm. book. And even now when I look at my life, I'm very comfortable. Even before I started writing this book, I was very, you know, comfortable negotiating. I always ask for more money. Like when I first started working, when I was 20, 21, I'd had this job like as like a junior account exec for four months. And I looked around and I was like, I think I'm doing more than they're paying me for. And so I just went and asked for a pay rise and I got it. Like, I, I think, did you? yeah, and, you know, and, and that was very much the kind of the assumptions I made about how things should work in the workplace. Obviously, the longer I was in the workplace, the more you kind of absorb certain dynamics and certain expectations. And I do think it's important to say that whilst women are as likely to ask for pay rises and more likely to be told no, it is perceived differently when women ask for more money. Mm-hmm. Like, I wrote an article couple of years ago that you know just kind of went a bit nuts about this same stat and had so many women say you know I totally relate to this I've been asked for a pay rise and been denied you know I was told mm. it sounds inelegant and these really gendered criticisms like people don't feel comfortable with women asking for money mm-hmm. that's kind of that the sort of the sum total of it yeah and yeah I mean I'm I'm, I'm here nodding like I I mean it, this isn't about me but I had a I my uh, background is in advertising same. And I was, I mean, really, I, so I was a uh, creative director, but between my two kids and I went for a really fateful dinner with some peers and we're talking about our pay and I realised I was being paid a, almost 50% less than I should have, should have done. And when I then went and asked for a pay rise, they said, but Clemmie, it's not about the money. It's like, we work in advertising. It's consumerism. Of course, it's about the money. <laughs> of course, it's about the money. Um, and then I n- didn't get the pay and then actually left the company after that. And for the first time ever in my career, went and really worked out what my rate card should have been. Because the problem is you get sucked into it. You're not having these... I wasn't having transparent conversations. So I didn't really know what my worth was. And then when I did go to negotiate my pay in the new job, I I was able just to say I need to be paid what I'm worth mm. and that for me was a like yeah I think it was it's very difficult especially in the creative industries if your work is quite hard to put numbers against and it is quite abstract and also it's really tied up with your sense of self mm. now I know that writing ads as you know isn't like about your sense of self but anything that involves creativity it, yeah I, I think for too long I saw it as a comment on me rather than on my business value and once I got my head around that it was a really big shift mm. yeah I mean it's not like being a lawyer where you know you have billable hours or no. you landed this client or you service an account that's worth this amount like it's it's a lot harder in creative industries I think to quantify your worth um but yeah I mean I, I I've been in similar positions where I found that, that I was underpaid and it's a really Galling thing to mm. yeah it's a really galling thing to to discover it is and and the thing is this is where 
I mean, going back to you saying it's endlessly fascinating, it is endlessly fascinating money because not only is it the transactions that make us go through life, but it is so steeped in emotion. And there's, yeah, there's no way if you find out you're deep, you're severely underpaid that that doesn't come with an emotional response of, of shame, of guilt, of anger, et cetera, et cetera. So that is where it's fascinating that something that ought to be transactional is is really far beyond that so to go back a step would you how would you describe your relationship with money growing up and and also now um I think growing up you know I came from a background certainly when my family moved to this country when I was five years old we didn't have a lot of money um we weren't like destitute or anything but like we didn't have a lot Mm. of money and money was tight and it was you know sometimes an issue um and I think I absorbed a lot of that as a kid because kids kids are really absorbent they're like little sponges and mm-hmm. I think most people's relationships with money in some way or another that kind of financial socialization begins in childhood and and you know you inherit your parents attitudes to money and the lessons they teach you you know very subconsciously but you inherit them the yeah. same way you inherit their genes really um and as I got older and you know especially when I got into my 20s and, and started working I did just become very anxious about money and specifically about the idea of running out of money um mm-hmm. and really yeah and I was really just sort of just quite panicky a lot of the time but on a quite mm-hmm. a low level I don't think you'd have you wouldn't have known it if you were friends with me it was very much more like you know if like an unexpected expense came along or like my rent was going up like even though I could afford it because you know I had like a, a decent job you know I wasn't I wasn't earning loads of money but like, I had a decent job mm-hmm. for and I had a sort of London salary um I would just feel you know I was aggressively saving money which is good financial practice mm-hmm. but it was almost kind of coming from this place of fear and you know I would kind of deny myself things that I could have afforded or that I wanted or that I could have justified because I had this goal of just like hoarding this cash because that was what I needed to feel secure and to feel mm-hmm. like I had a safety net and to, and to sleep at night which you know I still need I still need to feel like I have savings to to sleep at night but I think a lot of the actually the process of writing this book and having to actually really sit down and properly think through what my emotional relationship with money was helped me to realize some of the patterns that I'd formed over the years and almost kind of allowed me to kind of create like a rational second self who you know if I get a 600 pound bill for a gas leak for instance which I had a couple of months ago three or four years ago that would have absolutely floored me floored you and not because I couldn't afford it but because it just would have floored me like Mm. I panicked I'd cried Mm. you know whereas by the time that happened a couple of months ago I just thought to myself well you can't live with a gas leak and this is what it's going to cost to fix it and Mm. you have the savings you've put money aside for these sorts of emergencies and it's fine and I really just you know I was, you know, there was still a little bit of panic and annoyance or whatever, but like overall it was just You could talk of, yourself through it. I could talk myself through it. And I think I, I definitely do credit writing the book and, and just some of the research that I did and some of the information that I found out about, you know, people's financial behaviour and, you know, mm-hmm. the patterns that people tend to fall into. It's like there are very clear patterns and I fell into a very clear one. And I think just being aware of that and the fact that I'm not alone and that I don't have this really weird, irrational relationship towards money which is how I'd felt that was really helpful for me yeah and and the thing is I can only guess that that so many people 
I don't want to say everyone, but swathes of people are having those similar reactions, aren't they? And I think there's a, a bit of a double whammy. I've just written a book as well called But Why? And it's answering tricky questions from kids. Mm. And one of them was, but why aren't we rich? And so, I, you know, I cut that up. And one of them is like, well, what define rich? You know, there is rich in terms of yeah, your health and and love and all of those things, which is a, is a really valid answer. But we, as you say, we do kids a, a real disservice if we also don't talk about the, the nuts and bolts of money as well. And so we have to, I, yeah, I've kind of gleaned my money education from bits and bobs off here. And, you know, I don't feel like I really understood things in the way that I should have done. And so there's a double whammy of, of, lack of financial education mm. and and the emotional that that fear of what happens if we run out of money as, as the end point and it's quite a toxic com- not toxic it, it's a combination yeah I mean I, the thing that I always say and I was really really lucky about this is that my parents really taught me about the ins and outs of money and I grew up very financially literate which I think has served me so well um I've realized you know just very basic principles like I my mum took me to open my first bank account when I was eight years old and we put 20 pounds in that I'd mm-hmm. gotten as like birthday money from an aunt and then I get I'd get a letter like once a year from Lloyd's TSB for like my junior savers account yeah. that has like you've got a penny of interest but from that <laughs> I learned you know the concept of interest and I learned the concept of saving mm-hmm. and and she'd also made me do that because I think the year before I'd spent um the birthday money I'd gotten from the same aunt on like an ABBA CD and like regretted it and so she was like okay you're gonna learn how to save and like delayed gratification and I think I remember withdrawing that money when I was like maybe like 13 14 like I don't know what I wanted to do but I was like oh my god I've still got that account and like went and drew, get it. drew it yeah I went and drew it out but like you know they always taught me don't get into credit card debt you know save save more than you spend like, mm-hmm. don't spend more than you earn you know try and be as generous with other people as you can all these really really good money principles that I'm so grateful for when I was an adult because they're really embedded into the way that I conduct myself like I am a saver mm-hmm. and I, I think I inherited that from my parents and from the lessons they taught me and from all the research I I did, I mean, this is an aside, but the the practicalities of going and opening a bank account and like you being involved with that is the absolute crucial thing, like learning by doing. And especially for this generation of kids where cash doesn't really exist anymore. Right, yeah. Which is quite do, a mad... Come, go on. I do worry about the cashless society because it really... I've, I noticed it myself. It makes me spend more money. Like, it's just my, not, my money is now... It's just not real. It's just a bunch of tap. numbers in various accounts. It's not real. No. Like, the same way with like Uber. Like I'm like... I, I, I do worry. And I, it's really good for, you know, corporations and brands and, and businesses because I think people more willing to spend but I don't think it's good for us as consumers no and um, yeah and when you're trying to explain to the next generation you earn money and then it goes and they just never see it and it's just tap you know why is one tap a thousand pounds and another yeah. tap is 50p exactly it's, it's, it's like theoretical yeah it's so abstract and so mm. it's like yeah the advice I've got is to show them banking apps and try and get those numbers but that is is really difficult because I yeah at least growing up what other yeah, if I couldn't get money out of the cash machine, which I remember that dread, yeah. like, ugh. I was handed I did... my pocket money in cash. Like, yeah, you know, and so that's it's... what you've got. This is what you can spend. It, it yeah. is it is bizarre, isn't it, this digital age? And actually, COVID, is, I think, has accelerated us into cashlessness even more. 
and it, yeah I don't think we're going to go back so it, it's really hard to unpick your relationship with something so abstract mm, definitely so where do you think your like that overriding fear of running out of money comes from um I think it's just having sometimes watched money be a source of stress in mm. in my house growing mm-hmm. up I think I guess it kind of blew up almost into something slightly oversized in my head mm-hmm. um, because we didn't run out of money like you know we were fine um, but I think it just made me really hyper vigilant around money mm-hmm. and definitely when like it's, it sounds strange but like I remember in my 20s especially when I was renting I had this real fear of being homeless in a way that like even now like the charities I donate to are homelessness charities mm-hmm. and if I see someone in the street like that's kind of who I'll, I'll always give money to a homeless person I'm not saying that to make myself sound like no that's it just it's, genuinely it hits I always home feel yeah I always feel this gratitude that, I, that, that that's not me mm-hmm. being perfectly honest um so I think you know yeah renting as well didn't help in the kind of sense of housing and security that comes with that so I think it all just I just you know but I, I also would just catastrophize you know and that probably is just like an inherent personality trait. Yeah. um I, I've, I've been told i do that and stuff not just related to money you know? hands up but you've got the tool you know you said yourself you've now applied the tools of, of talking yourself through yeah I can definitely to, talk- to the bill which i think is progress in any of that kind of place because it's like you can't stop your initial reaction no because that's that's like yeah someone said yeah the your first reaction to things is, is what you've like kind of grown up with. And then as you educate yourself about anything, if you can then unpick it and mm. get yourself to a safe space. But it's interesting with any of these kind of spaces, actually that that's been a real bonus for you. That is, it's a great thing to have savings in the account. It, it's just knowing how to nudge it, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's just about striking that balance. So yeah, I'm always, you know, I'm really grateful for the fact that I saved from you know right from my very first paycheck when I was 20 when I started working I was temping as a receptionist and I put I put money aside and did that throughout my 20s and that ended up being really helpful and instrumental in in allowing me to get on the housing ladder along with a couple of other factors but you know the fact that I had savings and had been saving over a decade as opposed to over a couple of years um was really helpful for that so I, I definitely you know I'm glad to be a saver but it's just that there were also points in time if I look mm-hmm. back in my 20s where I was like you could have said yes to that holiday or yeah. to that birthday out yeah. or to that dinner and it wouldn't really have made a difference to mm. your savings and you, mm. you know I was like a bit too tight with myself at points um, it's really it's really interesting um, Lucy Sheridan who's the comparison coach she talks about every month she and this is a hugely privileged place to be but every month she allows herself to like she puts aside this treat money and it's a really interesting concept because if you've got any kind of negative hang-ups about money I find the idea of literally allowing myself to spend frivolously even though it's really considered I find that really difficult and she believes that she tries to spend a little bit more than is comfortable just so that it it she gets that kind of thrill I was like hats off to you but I find that really difficult but the problem is if you you yeah if you never allow yourself to enjoy it either then it's what's the point yeah definitely so I think I uh definitely in the last I don't know maybe a couple of years um I've kind of started to allow myself to treat myself a bit more there was kind of like a rock bottom point in my late 20s where 
I'd put myself on this minuscule budget. So I was earning money, but I just, you know, was saving as much and I was miserable. I was running out of money, you know, two or three weeks into every month. I ended up racking up overdraft fees. And that was the kind of turning point because I was like, Tega, you actually have the money and you're now paying overdraft fees because you've put yourself on this tiny budget. I hadn't been on holiday for years. I was really just putting myself through it in order to save Mm -hmm. as much as possible. And that was the kind of turning point when I think I was sort of moaning to a friend. It was like one really dark, grim winter. And I was like, oh, I can't even afford to go on holiday and I was like you actually can yeah <laughs> got money so if you want to go on holiday you can do that for yourself um mm. and, I, and I did it because I really needed a break like I was really burnt out and I think that just kind of allowed me to loosen the purse strings mm-hmm. a little bit and, and realize that there is a bit of a balance and and obviously you have to be in a position where you can actually meet all your costs and you know you yeah. can actually afford to treat yourself but I realized that yeah I was just I don't think you should be a martyr to saving. You know, I, you, you can't, like, make yourself miserable. I think sometimes when people talk about, like, millennials who can't get on the housing ladder and some of the advice you see in those sort of tabloid newspapers, mm. it's like, oh, but why do they go on holiday? And why do they have holidays? And it's like, because I want to have a nice life. Like, I should be allowed yeah. to enjoy my life at the same time as this. Like, you know, I saw this one account, which was, you know, occasionally those accounts of, like, people who've managed to make it onto the housing ladder against all odds and she kind of talked through what she'd eaten for the week and it was absolutely miserable like mm. it was like carrot sticks and like cans of cheese you know this was how she yeah. was aggressively saving and I thought that is miserable that that mm. you shouldn't have to do that in order to get on the housing ladder and suggesting that you have to be that self-sacrificing like, with yourself yeah it's, it's just it's not realistic so, no yeah in fact, I spoke to um, Medina Grilla, who's got a um, How I Rent. And as for all the reasons you say, renting can be problematic. But also, renting can be something to celebrate. You can make wonderful homes. And especially, actually, in the rest of Europe, renting in the rest can, of Europe. Be, can be a brilliant thing. So, yeah. you, you know, the idea that... But I, of course, owning a home is brilliant. But, uh, you know not at all costs to everything else because yeah you're right then sometimes need to it, it, it's just more nuanced than that isn't it yeah definitely I mean to be honest my renting experiences were pretty like, horrendous, horrendous all the way through um but there were also choices that I made that probably made them slightly more so like I lived in places a lot probably a fair bit cheaper than what I could have afforded because I wanted to say you know things like that um but I, I, you know, I do really understand and having crossed over to home ownership, like I do really understand why why people, yeah, because renting in this country and especially in London is an absolute <laughs> joke. Yeah, yeah it's, there are no protections. And, you know, it's interesting that you said the rest of Europe because, yeah, whenever I've been to visit friends who live, you know, like I had a best friend who used to live in Amsterdam for a bit and like, I remember going to see him and just looking around his flat and the amount he was paying for this like palace was what I was mm. paying for like a tiny box room in Dawson. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I feel really strongly that the way the housing market works needs to be reformed and there needs to be more regulations in the renting market. But um, yeah, I think if, if you are renting in the meantime, I guess the thing that I wish that I'd done is maybe spent a little bit more time, a little bit more money yeah. actually doing up the place, which feels so galling Can't- because it's like, well, I'm not going to get to keep any of this and it's going to 
it's, it's all, your home. this landlord but yeah it's your home you're there day in day out yeah and that's actually you can't that is so crucial to your overall well-being isn't yeah, it exactly yeah. and and actually it doesn't have to be on a huge scale you can do upgrades budget but, things yeah, yeah, the, yeah and yeah and, and then it just reframes it that you're not because yeah this thing that you're lining someone else's pocket which is true but you it's are true, also but you but are also, also you're investing make in your in your happiness yeah exactly so i think you have to think about it as more of the latter than think about the fact that yeah your landlord is ripping you off and it is interesting that you talk about this yeah we've touched on this not spending because it for me it, it automatically comes with quite a lot of guilt spending money and and it's it's this thing that I'm stuck between I'm very ambitious very driven want to try and like push you know grow my business grow the work that I do which ultimately does often come down to pay but if you're doing that all the time but never allowing the foot off your back to to enjoy it you're like what what on earth am I setting myself up for here yeah totally and like I said that's kind of the position that I found myself in a couple of years ago where it really was just a moment where I was like Otago like you work really hard you know, you might not be the biggest earner, you know, I wasn't earning tons of money, but I was, you can afford to go on a holiday and mm. you need something to incentivize yourself to keep working because otherwise, what's the point? Like, you don't work to work. Like, no, I, I wouldn't work probably, like, you know, like, wouldn't you? You? <laughs> you would. I don't know. I think if I really had the choice, I would, I would write at a, probably a slower pace, slow than pace. Now, but then I probably wouldn't do much else. Really? Mm. If like if you know, if I won the lottery or whatever, I would just kind of write a book every couple of years and then just chill the rest of the time. And a quick interlude for my book, But Why? How to answer tricky questions and kids by having an honest conversation with yourself. But why aren't we rich? But why do you have to work? But why doesn't money grow on trees? Are just a couple of the tricky questions I answer in the book with the help from experts both in the financial sectors, some people who found themselves in huge debt and managed to pull themselves out of it, and also just talking to a huge, broad range of people from all kinds of backgrounds about their relationships with money and work. It is available to pre-order now from your favourite bookshop or from the link in my show notes, so please do do that. It really does make a huge difference to us authors. Ah, still can't believe I get to say that. In that in the chapter that in the book that I wrote, I was like, yeah, people always say oh, it's terrible when people win the lottery. I was like, oh no, I'd, I'd have, yeah, I've, I've, I'd, I'd have a really great good go at it. <laughs> I'd, yeah, I think I'd be alright. I mean, I, think I know. I'd, I think I'd cope. Honestly, I'm just like I'm. I'm a naturally very lazy person. This is what I always say. Are I'm, you? I'm a high functioning lazy person, so really? I spend a lot of time overcoming my inner sloth in order to achieve the things that I want but like I said I would write because I am ambitious but there's a difference between writing for kind of there's a difference in working for creative fulfillment and there's and there's a difference in working for money yes huge I mean so is this this is your third book is that right yeah Uh, and as I'm like three weeks off my first publication date I mean writing a book is an what a thing it's an experience isn't it do you feel like you have learned about that experience are you like cruising towards publication date in a better way this well maybe you've cruised every time uh I hmm, my editor would be like be honest um <laughs> I think with the first two books I was actually very chilled in the run-up to publication but I the first book because I didn't know anything about publishing it sounds weird but I just assumed no. it would do well because I was like well that's what books do don't they <laughs> which is so far from the truth 
Um, so I mean, it did so, do well. So it, it you did. Were right. You know, I'm, and I'm I'm lucky that it did because I think that would have been a real like wake up call. I, didn't need. <laughs> I was just like, oh yeah, books do well, and oh look, my books People done well. It, so I was yeah, exactly. I was so 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 confident about it. Um, but also, I had no expectations. I wasn't planning on. At that point, I wasn't sure that I was gonna, you know, really have a long career as a writer anyway so I was like oh, I've got this book I'm kind of just happy that I've got a book deal and putting a book out in the world and then obviously in the years since I've you know really committed to, to writing as my livelihood um with my second book Whites that came out last November it was an essay again I felt pretty chilled in the run-up to publication because that book was just me saying what was on my mind and saying yeah. what I needed to say yeah and so yeah. It's not to say that I didn't care how it was received, but for me, sort of the process of writing that, it almost like it was, I sort of drew a line under it once it's finished. Yeah, that it's makes a sense. Piece and anything that happens. And then yeah, done. anything that happens is just what happens. And mm-hmm. especially when you're writing on such a fraught subject, I was like, I really kind of need to protect my piece in terms of mm-hmm. responses to it. So there was that. With this book, I am. I wouldn't say more nervous, but I am definitely more um, conscious of of how it's going to be received and 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 mm. whether or not it's going to do well. Just because it's it's so personal, it's much longer than my other books. I've spent a lot longer writing it. I think I've gotten way more invested. I've done a lot of research. Like I've it's been working on it for three years, so I think mm. naturally I'm just yeah, mm. I'm just kind of different... more, I guess, attached to it. Um, because the first two books I wrote, I wrote very, very quickly. Like Little Black Book, I wrote that in a couple of months. Whites, I wrote in a couple of months. Um, but this I've been working on for three years. So it's a different kind of level of atta- attachment to it. Well done for being honest. And yeah, <laughs> like, well, I mean, it's going to do really well. I know that. So you're fine. You're absolutely going to cruise it. But um, I'm going to hold you to that. If it doesn't, I'm going to be like, it'd be my responsibility. Yeah. And my publication day is two weeks later. So I'll be already in the absolute depth. (laughs) But similarly, mine is extremely research heavy. And I think, yeah, if I was to write another book, it wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that line again. Because the idea, the processing of information is a whole different thing. Like writing, I get in a kind of out of body experience and that's fine. But like processing stuff and, and pushing it out. Fact checking. Yeah. Research, oh, all of that. It was, yeah, that was, that was the most con- time consuming part of writing this book. Because, you know, it's partly memoir and then it's partly more commentary. And that's where the research comes in. And like the memoir bits, I could just write them very quickly, but... The other bits, like, you want to be accurate, mm. you, you know, but sometimes, like, there'd be a study that I'd read and the conclusion didn't quite make sense. Yeah. So I was, like, writing to academics, being like, can you... Yeah, and also, they're so sort of amenable because, there's you know, they've got, like, a PhD in this and there's this, like, journalist being <laughs> like, I don't agree with your conclusion. Can you tell me how you got to that? And they're like, of course. And, like, get on the phone with you and that sort of thing. It's, it's amazing. But that is time-consuming. Yeah. Um, and I did have to, at some point, be like... you you do need to draw a line under the research. You can't read any yeah. more books about this. You, you just need Your to Your head write. will explode. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah it's, a, it's a real thing. And also you're trying to process this information, sit that in a kind of neutral place, but with your opinion on top of it or your, you know, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote this mine last year. Were you writing last year? Oh no, you were writing. Yeah, I was. No, I was. I finished, I mean, I handed in the absolute final, final draft and january of this yeah. year so i was working on it all of last year since late 2018 I've been working on wow it. was it always mm. meant to be over that time frame no 
<laughs> so it was supposed to come out in 2020, right. but at yeah. the end of 2019, so it wasn't to do with the pandemic actually, but at the end of 2019, I just said to my editor, look, I no. need more time no. to get this to the standard that I want it mm-hmm. to be at. And they were totally chill about it, which I'm so grateful for because not all publishers are like that, but they'd, you know, they'd read a couple of the early chapters and they were like, if you need more time to, to do get it right. the rest of it to that standard, then that's totally fine. So we pushed it to 2021 and then the pandemic happened anyway. So, so... I was like... It worked out. Do you think the pandemic, you'd have written it differently? With Has the pandemic shaped this topic? I mean, money's going to be front of mind, I guess, because of the, the ongoing financial implications of the last year. But it's always relevant, I suppose. It's always relevant. And, you know, obviously when the pandemic hit like quite early on, sort of May, sort of April, May, I was like, I'm going to need to write about this. Like, mm. I was like, I can't. I can't just ignore no, this. No, I think um, it's going to be a thing. <laughs> it's I was yeah, I think this is going to be a bit of a thing. So <laughs> I, I realised I was going to... But I also left, you know, because the book is kind of in chronological order, I was like, I'm going to leave this till basically the end of the year and really mm. kind of see how things pan out, see if I can get a sense of how it's actually impacting things and also how it impacts my life because it did impact my life in various ways. So I essentially was like, I am writing this memoir in real time and I actually yeah. need to wait and see, and see what happens. And honestly, it didn't affect a lot of the book because especially when it comes to sort of wage inequalities, whether that's along gender or race mm-hmm. or the domestic, you know, no. household labour yeah. burden for women at home, the pandemic did what always happens in times of crisis, which is that it just exacerbated yeah. existing patterns. Yeah. Yeah. So everything I'd written about just got worse. Yeah. Dialed you know, up. But it didn't exactly, it just dialed it up. It's the same sort of thing that happened after the recession in 2008. Mm-hmm. You know, the same patterns are literally being transferred to um, 2020. So that again, in that instance, women tended to be kind of the shock absorbers of like household poverty. They tend to be the ones that picked up the slack in terms of, you know, looking after kids more domestic labor. If suddenly, if suddenly people are like, oh, I can't afford a cleaner or whatever mm-hmm. it was women and you know female mm-hmm. partners who were picking that up at mm-hmm. home and then we saw what happened with the pandemic which was that you know women overwhelmingly were the ones that were homeschooling yeah. children like both parents and, and this is in obviously heterosexual couples but both parents faced an increased um sort of burden of household labor but it was women who had to do more of it mm-hmm. um so you could you know you predicted it and then it transpired. And yeah. then I just sort of had to wait for some data to come out and, and so I could actually substantiate it. And the same thing with, you know, racial pay gaps and racial wealth gaps. You know, black and ethnic minority people were more likely to lose their jobs. As we heard, they were also, you know, dying from the virus at disproportionate rates um, compared to white people, which that I, I didn't expect, but, you know, that ended up being the case. the case. And to an extent, you know, we're not going to see the full ramifications of the pandemic for years and no, decades. We're not, you know, in every sense. Yeah, in every sense. So I could only write about what had transpired really by the end of twenty twenty. Mm. Um, but the situation hasn't changed that much since then, to be honest. No, yeah, you're right. It, yeah, it's, it's the dialing up of all these issues and becoming more acutely aware of them. And also that it's where the like the pain bit comes because we for all the things you've just said we know are wrong, but as the wave is crashing over you, it's it's yeah very hard to know how we begin to make changes on that other than to go into panic, which definitely isn't a, a good outcome, isn't it? But 
yeah, I'm trying to dig around for some optimism at this point. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I've got anything no. for I mean, it's made me reevaluate how certain aspects of how I live my life. And yeah. I think it's made me actually much more aware of how fortunate I am. Um, which I was always kind of relatively aware, but just the fact that I came through the pandemic intact, touch wood, yeah. and financially intact, yeah. and I know a lot of other people didn't. And that's not to say it wasn't challenging for me. Like, no, know, of I'm self-employed, so I lost a lot of work yeah. and a lot of business, and I had to be very kind of, I had to think fast, basically, and, and rely on my savings. But um, I'm I'm lucky, mm. um, and I think that it made me realise that um, probably more so than I had pre-pandemic. Yes. No, that doesn't sound too smug. No, I, I think, think no, yeah, I that. resist the urge to edit yourself there. That I think that is exactly <laughs> it. We know it, it, it aggravated the bits where there's problems in your life or in, or disconnect or inequality, but uh, yeah, the flip of it, there are bits where I've, yeah, I'm abundantly aware of, of how fortunate I am, and and that's quite a head fucking thing to get your head around. Actually, I think that's been the cycle that I've been on is like this is really difficult this is really difficult but it could be worse and that isn't yeah. isn't to you you should allow yourself to say this has been really difficult for some yeah, yeah self-employed yeah. and it was and it was it was really difficult especially in that first lockdown like I was I found that really tough and at the time I was also trying to buy my flat and it really was looking especially again because I'm self-employed it was like, really tough to make happen and it was really looking like it wasn't going to happen and you know that I found that really upset like really devastating because I'd been on working towards that for so long and it was like you know basically pre-pandemic they were like here's your mortgage in principle go mm. ahead and then it's just like the rug has pulled out from under me but um and so that was really tough but I managed it and I feel very hashtag blessed for that and I think it made me think more about I think something that I hadn't thought about as much pre-pandemic was just kind of gig economy workers like delivery yeah uh and uber drivers yeah and the extent to which we rely on them and the extent to which they have absolutely no workplace protection yeah whatsoever. It's, it's, it's so uncomfortable it's been so uncomfortable hasn't it just watching that play out in such when the roads are empty and it's just delivery yeah oh, it's like yeah. it's um, like some horror movie it like black mirror really isn't it and it's like guys this look what's happening there's so much of that like the world is is absolutely mad i'm convinced of it and it feels like it's heading into increased madness but yeah I so it's just kind of yeah. just made me think about what i can do to kind of you know i i've just been thinking about worker solidarity a lot more and like how i can do that across different like class levels mm -hmm. and just because i'm not an uber driver doesn't mean that i shouldn't be kind of conscious just like yeah. conscious of what's happening with them and, and thinking of ways that you know whether it's petitions or whether it's kind of lobbying or just kind of making noise about the situation mm -hmm. um or to be honest in my case what i've just started doing is tipping yeah um so and also, and also is... like talking to people I've, I've watched that transaction sometimes when people take like the delivery of people yeah it's I know, like I know, I know exactly what you mean. literally like humanizing yeah it's like say hello yeah. how's your evening yeah. have a good evening like don't just take especially if yeah. they don't can't i mean yeah it, definitely i agree it's like these and that is like not even an achievement that is just remembering that we are all people existing in this with the same challenges and the same human desire to you know be comfortable and be loved and if you can't Oh, yeah, I can't bear it. Just because they appear on an app, mm. there's still a person there. Mm. Oh, I can't bear that kind of thing. Um, 
uh, there's so much I wanted to talk to you about and I have, I'm aware that I'm running out of time other than to say yeah you, you've done something brilliant and I'm very excited for it to, to get out in the world and to get into people's hands and yeah I it's really brave to to share your story because as you say it might not be a, a Drew Barrymore story but actually it's <laughs> it's your life I I love hearing it's like reading someone's diary like it is a bit isn't it it's yeah really it's really personal it's like what you were drinking oh there's the bits about when you're at uni and I was just like yeah I absolutely love this I want to know all this stuff and it is it's it, as I said at the beginning it's brilliant because I'm so caught up in that but also learning loads of things along the way which is amazing what what fast forward six weeks what what do you hope to be the impact of the book what do you want people to be saying doing off the back of it you know the biggest thing that I want is actually as it relates to the workplace because you know as I write in the book I worked in a couple of different toxic workplaces mm. within advertising mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the time I really internalized the stuff that was happening to me and the stuff that was said to me and I internalized it's kind of like a failure on my part I didn't realise that certain dynamics are just very established, well-worn tropes that you have to deal with as a as a woman, as a young woman, as a black woman. Mm. You know, the kind of invisible labour, the microaggressions. And I know that there are a lot of other people, and men as well, not just women. Mm -hmm. like I think, you know, men should also read this book and I think men will also identify with a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there are lots of people who are in those sorts of situations and I hope it, A, alerts them to that fact and makes them, re they kind of see their experiences in mine and they're like, well, hang on, that's actually what's happening to me mm -hmm. as well. And I hope that they then take action, whether that's starting to push back, you know, reporting things to HR, calling out their bosses, mm -hmm. quitting jobs, all of that, mm -hmm. because I think that work is obviously so tied up with money. It's like we work for money, like that's, you know, for the most part, that's, that's kind of what people, certainly what I do. Um, and especially when you work in a nine to five, you feel very vulnerable and very precarious. And, you know, I'm so much more bullshit now that I'm self-employed mm -hmm. when I don't feel be. like I have anyone to answer to. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to be, but also I'm like, I'm like, fine, if that client decides I'm too difficult yeah. to work with, I'll just work with someone else. But when you work a nine to five, if your job fires you, that's a really big deal. Mm. I have one source of income. And I think that, encourages people understandably to be much more scared and to not stand up for themselves and and I definitely get that but I do hope that I just really hope that people start calling out kind of workplace toxicity mm. and exploitation like that for me is I think also one of the most defining features of my 20s mm. is having to deal with a lot of shit mm. at work um and I I would not wish those experiences mm. on my worst enemy generally wouldn't so yeah. Mm. I'm sitting here nodding because you know what this is really good for me to hear this because like you I've been self-employed for the la over this pandemic yeah. and you know there's so many times I was just like oh I just wish I had a guaranteed paycheck I just wish I did and I wish you know the, to be self-employed does mean working insane hours yeah. but I, I have literally shut out so I left advertising you know in my early 30s and yeah. I've, I've it's only talking to you now that all those triggers are coming up and I was just yeah. like oh yeah that was a guaranteed 
paycheck but it wasn't really guaranteed because I could have been fired and it came with so much it's this weird thing I think particularly in advertising where you feel like you're you're part of a culture and mm. there's a work hard play hard thing so you you know you're I was really good friends with everyone that I was working with and then the day you don't get a pay rise or the day you leave or the day you resign and you get that you get a tragic card and no one gives a shit <laughs> like you no one gives a shit and, it, and it's really hard because you poured so much of yourself into it and it's it, it's weird because it's a corporate industry masquerading as something else. Like yeah. I think if you worked for a bank, you know that it's work. But it, it, the boundaries are definitely yeah. there way more. Yeah, I know. I think creative industries and creative workplaces and ad agencies in particular really capitalise that on that whole. We're all a family. Yeah. We're all a team thing. Yeah, we're not. And it's a way of getting people to work harder. Yeah, we're servicing less a, money than they should get. We're servicing a very lucrative bottom line, and it's just like <laughs> it's really it's yeah. So it's it's. It's, and it's really hard to wake up to because yeah, there was so much of it that was fun and there was so much of it that, that was validating. Mm. Um, and you just don't really know, unless you talk about it as you've done it through the work that you do, you don't even know it's toxic. Well, I didn't. I knew that I was unhappy and I knew, but I couldn't place it until I've got right. the maturity to reflect on it and go, right, exactly. oh, my, oh my word, this is absolutely yeah. mad. I knew I was deeply unhappy. Yeah. And I knew that I didn't like working there, but I think to actually look back at these things and be like, oh, that was a classic toxic workplace. Yes. Yeah. It's taken me a while to realise that. Yeah. And, and at the time I was like, I don't fit in here. I'm not the right type of person mm. or there's something wrong with me. I'm, you know, I need to try and be more X or more Y. That's definitely how I felt in my yeah. 20s. And, and interestingly, that, that was the time I've, I'm now like sober, but at that time I was drinking an awful lot. Mm. And it's no surprise, it's all tying up in it, isn't it? You're totally. you're unhappy, you're, you're self-medicating and also you're trying to be the person, that fun, fun time person and then it's absolutely exhausting and then to come and try and be good at work. Mm. It's like, wow, yeah. So for all the self-employed, the, the challenges of being self-employed, which are huge, at least it's, um, it's my gig and I forget that that's such, a, such a, an amazing thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you just sent me on a whole route. I'm going to spend my whole day thinking about that now. No, I'm, 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 I think it's good to, to reflect back on those things. Because yeah. Because I think, yeah, often you're not prompted. That's what I'm saying about the book. I think often you're not prompted no. to think about these things unless someone really kind of hammers you no. over the head with it. And so I had to think about it because, and it was funny, like so many parts of the book, especially talking about work. I, so I used to chat to my best friend on Facebook, like, <laughs> all the time like all the live long day basically at some yeah. jobs and so in order to write certain sections i actually went back into the facebook and downloaded your the archive of years yeah yeah and wow. that's also what's actually published in the book so i did ask for his permission to put in little snippets like it's literally all as is um and there was so much stuff i'd forgotten really like, so much bad stuff out. i'd forgotten yeah and i just thought how can you have forgotten like this racist comment or that like oh. i'd just completely forgotten it <sighs> And so I do think it's it's important to actually look at these things, mm -hmm. like look at them square on. Because now, like, honestly, with all the trials and tribulations of being self-employed, I still feel very lucky yeah. to be able to work without that with who I want, mm. you know, with the sorts of people, you know, and I, I choose who I choose who I work with based on basically whether I like them. Yeah. Like, if I don't, if I don't like someone, I'm not going to work with them. No, 
What and, and you don't have that option when you work in a nine to five. No, and you suck it up and you suck it up. And you know, our work, as you say, not only does it pay our bills, it takes a huge percentage of your life. And so, you know, there's all those things that the people that you're spending your life with end up being who you become. And yeah, just wake up to it basically, and and don't be too afraid to make a change. I suppose that's easier said than done, isn't it? Especially when the jobs market is, I don't know. Yeah, I hope I hope that people are inspired to to just reflect on the whole thing from the beginning to the end, from those early days of pocket money to university to navigating splitting bills to yeah navigating pay you know your pay and I haven't I'm I feel like I'm bad that I haven't got all the way through your book so I haven't been able to talk no, about all the fine. things you covered but we've, we've, no, no, we've done a chunk of it <laughs> thank you so much oh no I've got three questions before I end let's wrap okay. it up in a neat way right. where can people find you and I mean we've talked about the book a lot but shout out the book and where people can sure. get that um so you can find me getting into fights on twitter at o-t-e-g-h-a-u-w-a-g-b-a I'm like did I spell my name right yeah at Ategi Wagba on twitter and the same on Instagram. And yeah, my book is called We Need to Talk About Money. It's published by Fourth Estate on July the 8th. And yeah, that's me. Uh, and you've got two other books as well. Oh yeah, sorry, <laughs> of course. Um, my other books are Little Black Book, and Toolkit for Working Women, which is like a career handbook for working women, as the title suggests. That came out in 2017. And my essay, Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, which came out last November and they're all published by Fourth Estate as well and you can buy them at any good bookshop. They're available then. And then two questions to end. So Mm -hmm. this podcast and the work that I do is inspired by a few things. One of them, my one of my favourite traits, which is honesty. I think that honesty Mm -hmm. is one one of the most valuable things we can have. Um, What is your best trait and what trait do you most admire in other people? Okay, the trait I most admire in other people, that's an easy one, yeah it's ambition i realized that it really like even in my in my friends like i was thinking about the friends that kind of kind of attract into my life i find that really and you know even in a romantic way but even my friendships like i just like ambition not cold ambition where it's like you're the kind of person who do anything to get ahead but i like someone who is ambitious and i really i really admire that trait mm-hmm. in other people uh my best trait personally is I think I can be quite charming when I want to be. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's, yeah, that's I think I'm good at I think I'm good at talking to people and, and sort of getting on with people like and I and it's something that I use like I've travelled a lot like so done solo travelling. Like I always feel very confident going into a situation where I don't know anyone and feel like yeah I can get along with anyone here. That's I think that's an amazing trait. Do you think that's learned or you think that's just you as you as you are? That's definitely learned because it's really funny um, and I kind of can pinpoint the exact point I learned to do this was because when I was at uni, I was like part of a big group of girls and we never went anywhere without each other. We always had to be like, you know, if I want to go to this thing, you have to come with me. You're a crew. Um, And then after uni, I had a big falling out with them. We've all made up now, but I had a big falling out with them where I didn't speak to any of them for about a year. And so... I had to start going to things on, on my own and learning how to do that because I was like, well, I still, you know, 
so there'd be like a house party or something someone would know and usually you'd meet up with a friend beforehand and go together you go together but suddenly I'm kind of turning up on my own I know people there but it's that thing of turning up to parties on your own and I honestly think that year was so pivotal for me because I became so used to and comfortable going to things on my own and have carried on being able to do that even you know even when I do have people to go to stuff with which you know I do yeah but I'm just like I can go to situations by myself and deal and it's totally fine and I'll probably find someone I'll probably strike up a conversation it'll be totally cool so yeah I think that was really important lesson for me to learn I mean I think it's like the one I think that's like isn't that like the ultimate one of the ultimate life skills to be absolutely sure of yourself and yeah I think well done you and and it's funny when people say the thing that they admire in others and then obviously I don't know you other than this conversation and I've seen the work that you do but I'd say you lad are quite high on the ambition thing so often the thing people admire is like oh yeah you're just describing yourself um but that's perhaps 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 but I definitely it's something that I reflect on a lot like I don't know when like a friend fire in their belly with with work I'm just like yeah like I feel like it's my win as well and I'm just yeah it makes me really happy so And I just feel proud of them. So yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's all those things, isn't it? You you know that you're you're on your own right journey if you can yeah. just be abundantly happy for everyone else. It's I like basking their glory. Yeah. Like I say to all my friends, I'm like, my pension plan is when you all make it really big. Well, first of all, you're going to need to house me. But second of all, I'm going to go on all those shows and do vox pops about you and be like, yeah, so I knew her when she was 25. And, she, and I'm just going to get paid like a couple of grand each time, a couple of hundred. <laughs> so I was like, I've got you all marked. That's my retirement plan. So, yeah. And meanwhile, you're doing the same, but you're just pretending you're not. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is it's inspired by is like my absolute love of a big chat and my kind of version of that it's, it's probably a small scale group like four to six people something involving food something not involving a late night because I like to go to bed early what describe your like ideal setting for a really big chat what kind of size of people what time of day where would you be what would you be eating okay so I'd be on holiday somewhere in Europe either kind of south of France or like Barcelona, you know, somewhere sunny. And it'd be a dinner of two or three people, no more than three, including myself. And, you know, it's that thing, the sun's, you know, the sun's oh. just set, it's maybe eight or 9 p.m. I know, I'm just describing what we haven't had in the past. Oh, no, it's like the dream. Sun's going down, you know, you've, Maybe it's just after the meal. So when last time I was in Barcelona, I discovered this amazing term in Spanish called sobremesa, which translates very literally as after table. And that's literally a word in Spanish to describe, you know, after you've had the meal yeah, just sitting and, and you're just sitting there drinking and chatting and picking and ordering bits <sighs> and another glass of wine. They actually have a word for, for that, that kind of period. Yeah, I know. And I was like, <laughs> it just kind of says it all. And that is like my favorite thing oh, of an dream. evening. So that's my ideal picture. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's absolute gold, isn't it? Mm. And you realise that is what we've missed so sorely in the and and every element of that of doing it somewhere that isn't home, of yeah. being able to like it's it's coming back now. But even this, this tensions around sharing food now about whether you mm. should and shouldn't do that, and it's just like mm. oh, this is tragic because yeah. and also why I think a lot of us have spiralled a bit in the last year because come we can learn all we like but for me conversation is one of the tools for processing things for bouncing off other people for 
hearing what they think and not necessarily agreeing with them but we've lacked we've of course we've all done it on whatsapp and zoom but you have to be sitting and looking at someone i think to really chew the fat on stuff mm, definitely it'll come back though probably yes, not i know that's that when i get that moment whatever point in the next you know year or so that's when i'll be like okay the pandemic is over because that's what i really want <sighs> Yeah, I'm channeling that, yeah. And the thing is, we've all accepted this summer's probably a write-off. It's a write-off. Next year, you don't but think I'm it is? I'm also going to try and... No, oh, I don't know. But I'm also going to try and recreate it in, know, yeah. in London. Like yeah. you, can, you can kind of have that sort of evening a little bit in like a sunny garden. I you agree. Know, if the weather's just right, you can kind of pretend, you know, you're in Costa del, you know, Some, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's so possible. true. And I actually, I remember in that lull in the summer last year, going to the Rye and everybody um, doing their thing and yeah. going, this is actually really beautiful. It, it, yeah. it really is. And it's, it's not how we'd all choose it. But yeah, I've never seen, I mean, that was the joke, I suppose. I've never seen it so busy as it was over last summer in the evenings and yeah so we can hold oh you yeah no you know what I mean it's all safe but you know what I mean yeah, that's yeah, that was yeah, the bizarre yeah. thing of it um anyway yeah well here's to what did you give me the Spanish again I'm going to try and remember sobremesa sobremesa oh I really want to try and whip that out and I really am never going to remember but it's a lovely thing and and thank you so much for joining me today for this thank you yeah, for having me brilliant chat do you go into your whole advertising bit in in due course in here in the book, yeah. I, oh, yeah, it's juicy. I name names. Do you? <laughs> yeah, it's those big London ad agencies yeah. there. There is a time. A trip. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> so. we've come out the other side. and Yeah, exactly. So we survived it. Thank you so much. And okay. um, Steve, I think that's it. I'm still really, really trying to log that bit of Spanish into my head. And even as I'm recording this outro shortly after the episode, I can't remember it. So that's a shame. But oh, that particular window of time really is one of my favorites and now for a bit of honesty for me this episode is one of those ones that left me feeling really wobbly I was saying to myself was I smart enough were my questions intelligent enough was I too relaxed and open or did I lack self-awareness about money I could have been all of those things and you'll have already formed an opinion by now but also perhaps this is just exactly the problem for me personally, but I don't think I'm alone in feeling this about money, that it can be really triggering. It can make me feel quite unsafe, not very relaxed. And much as I want to be better, both in terms of financial literacy, but also just holding meaningful conversations about it, I've still evidently got a lot of work to do. And that's not really surprising because when we talk about money, um, and as I take a brilliantly... Um, unpicks in her book we're actually talking about social conventions we're talking about class we're talking about bias she also nudges into the workplace and um the girl girl boss culture money is infinitely huge so of course it's complex but i hope the episode gave you some food thought uh yeah gave you some things to think about and things to reflect on about your own relationship with money So thank you for being here. Please do come along next week. And in the meantime, please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends all about it. And yeah, join me next week. Bye-bye.